It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Welcome. Thank you for downloading. Sorry, it is still not Matt Chorley. It's still me, Lou Jones, um, sitting in. Don't worry. Uh, Matt's alive and well. He's sunning himself in the garden. He'll be back in front of your podcast microphone very soon. Today, we've got absolutely loads for you. Um, We'll do Disunited Kingdom on this podcast. We'll take you around all the four corners of the UK, find out what is happening from journalists on their their patches. And also, um, we're going to be hearing from Susan Mickey, another one of our pre-pandemic profs. We've been profiling some of the... um, experts who we hear all the time on the airwaves to tell us what on earth they were doing before the pandemic because it turns out they had careers before covid and mighty interesting careers they were she's currently director of the center for behavioral change first though our columnist here's robert crampton and angela epstein Uh, we're thinking about first date stories at the moment because you might have seen Keir Starmer on Piers Morgan's Life Stories last night talking about how he met his wife and she put the phone down on him. He was trying to organise a date for months and eventually she said, all right, I'll go out with you. Oh, I feel like Ken Bruce. Um, Robert Crampton and Andrew Epstein, our columnists are here. Morning, both. Morning, Luke. Thank you very much for, for joining us. Either of you got a very good uh, first date story, Robert, Angela, maybe how you met your, your, your partners or previous lovers? Well, huh, lovers. Um, OK, so um, I met my husband when I was 18 years old and we bumped into each other on a street corner. He was with somebody I knew and da-dee-da-dee-da. We sort of were all, he's a few years, he was three years older than me, but we sort of all knew each other in my um, very exciting corner of North Manchester. And it was just after the A-level results came out and his chat-up line was, what did you get in your A-levels? Um, Lovely. Matt, Matched nice. only by his proposal, um, which was we were on and off for a few years. I'm sure readers are riveted by my love life. But, um, <laughs> but when uh, when we finally sort of, you know, he decided he wanted to get married, he rang me up and he said, uh, I've been speaking to my parents. They think we should get married. So, you know, violins, <laughs> rose petals. Nope. None of that. Thank you. Just um, how's about it? Mm, what can you expect from a chartered accountant? That's all I can say. Oh, it's like a Richard Curtis movie. Robert, can you can you beat that? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, my wife and I were at school together, so we met even younger than 18. We met when we were 11. Oh, gosh. Uh, wow. We didn't, start, we didn't start going out together, I hasten to add, until we were in our mid-20s, but we were friends in between. We met at the school youth club uh, at 1976, I think. Mm. Uh, I was playing table football, uh, which I knew how to play because... Uh, I'd played it a bit in France on holiday. My wife, who didn't know how to play, <laughs> anyway, just came along and told me how what we should be doing and organised the whole thing, and she's been pretty much doing that ever since. It was a bit like that bit in Ghost where Patrick Swayze helps us sort of do the posture. Was it like that, but your wife helping you with the table football? Well, yeah, I mean, she thought she was helping Reaching round from the, behind I, you I, to sort of do the... Yes, I was actually the one who knew what I was doing, but uh, that's, that, hasn't, that didn't stop her then and it hasn't since. Marvellous. Well, 87222 if you want to text us, start your message with the word Times. You can tweet us at Times Radio. Um, how you met your lover, uh, a story better than Keir Starmer's on uh, how he met his wife, according to uh, what he told Piers Morgan last night. Right, both of you, let's get on with the business of the day. Um, vaccine confidence. Um, this morning, the UK government has been hosting a global summit on vaccine confidence because um, there are some parts in the UK where vaccine take up has, has faltered. I mean, we had those pictures of, of Twickenham and people 18 and up 
sprinting to try and get a, a vaccine, but in places, uh, oh. some parts of Scotland, um, that there's uh, still some worry that people might, uh, younger generations aren't as, as keen. Are you worried about that, Angela? Um, I'm concerned that because simply because the vaccine, as far as we understand it, is the is the best way to get out of or to at least manage the uh, the epidemic and mm. um, or the pandemic rather, uh, you know, and obviously the vaccine confidence project is is going to try and address the public concerns in order to sort of improve vaccine coverage. Now I've got a little bit of skin in the game here because uh, and sorry to sound like the typical proud mother, but my my eldest son is a is a young is a young doctor, junior doctor, and he was chucked in on the front line back in March last year when, um, you know, when COVID was just this unknowable thing. Yeah. Um, and even the consultants didn't know what they were doing. And, um, you know, and I, I chat to him a lot about this and he, he just gives me the information. And obviously, there's all the, the great and good and, and the, the really important talking heads that are on the telly that tell us all the data. But the upshot is, is that you talk to anybody who's managed the horrible sides of COVID and they'll tell you, why would you even risk it? So we've obviously got an issue. And I think part of the problem is that there are there are the, the classic vaccine refuseniks. And unfortunately, I know some of them who, who do sort of trot the line out about, well, we don't know what it is. Is it poison? Is it the new thalidomide? And all those yeah. kind of, they are ridiculous uh, conversations because thalidomide was an entirely different kind of situation. Um, but then then we have to sort of sensitively look at the, the demographic of those who are sure are shirking the vaccine certain communities certain ideas and we need those who are influential within those areas to speak out and advocate because otherwise it just becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy and people will just not go near it and that we have to be vaccinated otherwise what happens is the disease stays within the community. The vaccine is only 90% successful. So there's going to be a 10% risk anyway. The vulnerable will be exposed. Ultimately, hospital um, admissions will go up. And then we, we're on that horrible road that we've all, we're all so pig sick of. So yeah. we have to encourage the vaccine. Pig sick is exactly the word for it. Um, but Robert, but the, I'm, I'm surprised by, because as Angela was saying, you, you think of uh, vaccine refuseniks and you think of, of strange people who live in the internet. But actually, I was uh, having dinner with someone the other day and she's in her late 20s, friend of mine, and I was surprised where she said, um, she's a really clever person, but she said, um, I'll have the vaccine, but I mean, I won't be desperate to get it. I mean, I'll, I'll probably get it. Yeah. I'm not mega keen. And I just could not get my head around it. So there's that no, kind of low-level ambivalence, isn't there, which is pleasing. Yeah, I've, I've come across the same thing amongst uh, I mean, uh, everyone of my generation. I'm 56 and older, has had it, no problem. Uh, but amongst my younger friends, people in their uh, 20s, 30s and 40s, I've also been surprised, given that I think they're sensible people, that they're not in any rush to have it. They don't have any, they're not conspiracy theorists. They don't think it's, you know, they're being injected with, you know, Microsoft programs or anything. They just think, well, this isn't really a, a priority for me. Uh, yeah. And I think I can sort of see where they're coming from, but I can also feel a rising tide of uh, frustration uh, and anger, not least in myself, that... This will lead to. Uh, they might. They won't. They, presumably, they they're not going to die, but they they could end up in hospital. And the NHS has got more than enough to do, uh, trying to start working through the backlog of mm. of non-COVID uh, patients. So, and it could also, as as Angela suggested, it could also mean that the restrictions uh, end up not being lifted for a, a while longer. And I think there could be a real backlash against that view. Uh, I mean, the vast majority of people who are ill with COVID now are, are under 50s who have not been vaccinated, which yeah. just is, is proof positive that the vaccine works. Uh, but some people think there's, there's, there's a, I, I can't avoid the conclusion that there's a, there's a majority, a minority, but a fairly large minority of people in society who are pretty selfish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Definitely. yeah. Don't, they don't really sort of care too much. Uh, and which is why we have laws really because most most of us are law abiding and the laws that exist are there to prevent the small minority break you know behaving badly uh, but don't don't, don't you well, think also I, I mean i agree with robert um isn't it awful when you when your guests agree with each other <laughs> no it's nice I agree with everything. Bye. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, what he just said, yep. No, but, but also, the thing is, 
there's a there's a very liberal anti-vaccine passport conversation um mm. and i understand the whole issue about you know all the cliches come marching out about n- nanny state and surveillance culture and all that kind of thing but we embrace vaccinations when it suits and this is why robert's so right about the selfishness issue if you want to travel to certain countries and they say you've got to have a hepatitis injection or you've got to have a typhoid injection and you want that long awaited trip to wherever it is. You know, I'm talking about pre-lockdown times when we used to be able to travel. Mm. You did it because you thought I'm going to do it. You didn't start raging about this is my this is these are my human rights being it, compromised because I mean, you did it when um, sorry to, to drop the young doctor thing again. You know, when my son started medical school, it's you've got to have these injections. You're going to be in any any of these healthcare courses. It's not just medicine, all of them. You've got to have certain injections because you're going to interface with with patients. We do it. We do it because self-interest is king. Um, and and that's the whole problem is because we've got no way of policing it. And believe me, I'm not a raving fashion who's trying to advocate a police state but because they're over despite what my husband said but but because we are (laughs) (laughs) reader i married him but because we are not trying because there's no way of enforcing it enforcement is such a dangerous word but because everything's open to everybody regardless of your vaccination status then how else do you encourage it so the only way you can do it is try to get the public Mess, you know, the awareness, the healthcare message across. Um, but I think because COVID, so many people are asymptomatic. Because, as Robert rightly says, you know, they they go they go on about their business. It doesn't bother me. Um, and I do think also. I mean, I've seen it in. You know, I'm part of the Orthodox Jewish community. I've seen it in. It happens in the Asian community. There are certain communities where there is vaccine skepticism, um, and we have to try and address that and, inc- and encourage the confidence. Mm. for people to, to accept that this is a good thing. And then we should say, meanwhile, um, as we had the other day at Twickenham, we had a sea of 18 and uh, above absolutely legging it uh, in some parts across London to get there. And in fact, after that, I um, I had serious... I was tempted to go... I haven't been vaccinated yet. And um, the next one... Next, no, the next two stages, because they're doing them in, year, in two-year blocks, aren't they? So I'm 27, so I think the next, I'll be the next stage after next. Anyway, I was getting serious 27. FOMO. 27? I've got dresses that are older than you. <laughs> um, but I was, I was getting serious FOMO, and I, th- I was annoyed that I didn't leg it to Twickenham. So yesterday, I was about to take myself off for a walk, and it was sort of near six o'clock time, and I thought, oh, this is when vaccine centres are closing, aren't they? And you hear all those stories about, we've got leftovers, come and get yeah. your jabs and everything. So I got one of one of those rental bikes and did a little tour of, I found out where three vaccine centres were near me, and I went around each one. I went to one and left a name and a number. At seven o'clock, they called me back. I went... I sat there for 30 minutes and then the woman came out and she said, I'm so sorry, this never happens, but we have completely um, used up every dose. There's no half oh, open dear. vials. Oh. We've like done the maths perfectly. Yeah. But she said, come back tomorrow, so today at seven, and we'll and we'll try again and you'll be top of the list. So, is that Pfizer well, think... or AstraZeneca? It'll be Pfizer. But literally the advice is get on your bike. I yeah, said, I mean, rode I think around Luke, London in a, in a mad sweat. Luke, I think the vast majority of 27-year-olds are, are like you. I don't want to demonise young people. Uh it's you, you, we're talking about a small percentage, but a significant percentage of uh, uh, people who haven't yet quite got the message that uh, they need to get this they mm. need to get this done, to, as, as Angela rightly says. So we can, we, we, you know, we squeeze the whole, uh, we squeeze the virus out of uh, society. So it isn't just hanging about, making our lives a misery for an indefinite period mm. of time. Let's talk about, um, I was going to say something a bit more cheery, but actually this is just expensive holidays when you when you boil it down. Let's worry about PCR tests and how much they yeah. cost. Grant Shapps on, on this very network not too long ago was saying he was driving down the cost of PCR tests that you need uh, before and after you go to um, even uh, green list countries, let alone just amber list countries, and which the consumer group have warned today that, that holiday makers could miss out on their trips Um not only because of the cost, but actually because of uh, some of these private companies doing the tests are struggling to return the tests on time. And this is even though actually there's only a sort of handful of countries that you should technically be going on holiday to at the moment. Um, Angela, what what do you make of this? Because the greenness is going to expand soon. Well, I I, I certainly hope so. I mean, um, it's interesting, the the one of your rivals, the Mail, have got um, a campaign urging the Treasury to axe VAT on the so-called 
you know, the gold standard PCR tests, and that would at least help, um, you know, slash the, the cost of, of these because it is astronomical. And if you quite rightly want to go on a holiday, you're a family of four, you want to go with whomever you want to treat your parents who you haven't seen for ages, you know, the, the cost, the additional cost is going to be significant. Um, I, my son, another son, I haven't got hundreds of children, I was by the say, way. How many children have you got? <laughs> my name is Von Trapp. Epstein is my pseudonym. You have a whole critical care unit staffed by your offspring. Correct. <laughs> so this one's a, this one did history. You're all right. But he needed um he needed a same day PCR test and um for for something and you know we we were firing out. We were looking on the internet and the the cost was just spiraling. And in the end, we found one and it was 140 quid. That was just Ouch. for one person and that was a same day. Um, you know, the, the travel industry has suffered, the consumers have suffered, our mental health has suffered because we've not had the, the freedom to go away. And I know there are lots of very important things out there too. Um, but, but I think the fact is that, that at the moment, it's, be going to, it's going to become so significantly expensive to do anything, even if they do expand the green list, mm. which in itself is a, is a nonsense. And, and my favorite joke, I can't, I can't claim, although I am claiming it, is the kind of what I call the ambiguity list. Yes, <laughs> lovely. Yeah. Nice. There's a headline on. the other day that was Amber Gambler, which I quite liked as well, of people yeah. heading out there. Uh, Robert, yeah, okay. when you read all these stories, is it putting you off um, the idea of, of leaving uh, the British Isles at any point this summer? It is a little bit, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a significant cost. I mean, if you're looking, you're looking at maybe a grand for, for a family of four. Yeah. Uh, and uh, other than that, I mean, I've got some friends who just come back from Portugal and they, they say there's, a, there's various... I mean, I hesitate to call them scams, but there's, 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 you know, that in order to get their test to come back from Portugal, they was they they said, well, that would be whatever it was, two hundred euros or three hundred euros. Oh, and if you want it translated into English, that would be another hundred euros. So, and, and uh, you're stuck if you're coming back. You think yeah, well, you've, think you've got so. to get it done. You're in Portugal, so they can well, charge think, what they like. I think yes, there, there's a there's a certain advantage being taken, and. Uh, I mean, the idea that there's, va- there's VAT on them is obviously a nonsense. I mean, that would help mm. getting rid of that. But uh, we also, we have to take away this idea that going on holiday is a gamble. And I said, what we need is certainty. Um, so green list, yes. Red list, no. Um, we, I mean, we tried to go to Tenerife at, at Christmas time. And um, suddenly, I don't know if you remember, but, but Britain was thrust on, a, on yeah. the no-go for all, anything under Spanish jurisdiction. And we'd, we'd paid for I mean, I don't expect you to get the string quartet out to, <laughs> for, for us, but, but we paid for PCR tests. Um, and it's simply not fair. I mean, I know in France, French nationals, the government pays for them um, if you want to travel abroad. I think the easier thing is to, is to embrace certainty. So can you go or can you not? Um, and and yeah. then if you can go, are you vaccinated? How many PCR tests will the lateral flow do because otherwise you know there's a there's a fantastic industry out there which is and it can't even keep up anyway but it's not fair we've had ambiguity for too long and we need we need to know where we stand on all this very finally uh, both of you did either of you see Keir Starmer on um Piers Morgan last night on on life stories I didn't I'm afraid I've read about it but I didn't see it what about you Angela I saw a bit, but I, I decided to go and watch The Sound of Music instead. <laughs> I mean, it had everything. It had, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not undervaluing the fact that, you know, the, the stuff about his parents was was awful. But you know, the fact his mother was so seriously ill, the fact his dad died, that his family dog was killed in a fire. Yeah. It seemed to be like yeah. one thing after another. Um, there was some ludicrous stuff. Was he the inspiration for Bridget Jones's Mark Darcy? I really hope not. Otherwise, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to take a travel pill if I watch that one again. Oh, in fact, well. Richard Curtis speaking to Mariella Frost a little bit later on. Didn't he write the screenplay for, for Bridget Jones? I think he did. Well, anyway, we can we can ask him because he's friends with uh, Alan Fielding, isn't it? So we can get Mariella to ask him that. Um, but what do you make of that uh, of this genre, Robert? It's the it's the politician trying to do the the personal yeah, professional I mean, interview. We all bemoan it and we think oh we wish we wish it didn't happen and it, the politics was more serious and not about personalities and so on. But it's just the way, it's the way things are and. Uh, he needs uh, he needs to catch a break. He needs the British public has not warmed to him for whatever reason, and he's I don't suppose he wanted to do it, but he's trying his best to mm. uh, advance the cause of his party. So I I, I came away I, I I think well you know well done you know what I sort of sort of slightly warm to him for for, for doing it because uh, God knows he I'm, I'm sure he didn't want to, but he's he's doing his best. Yeah, he's doing his best. And uh, the stuff about his dad, I thought, was interesting. I think probably a lot of uh, people could probably relate to that. 
So, and we might not like it, Angela, but um, even though we would like everything to be done on on policies and manifesto yeah. pledges, actually, a lot of it is just down to, well, do you like them or not? What do you make of them? I agree. I absolutely agree. On that level, yes. Um, and, and why did why did Blair enjoy such a you know a historic sweep to victory and 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 such so so much time in office was because people enjoyed everything that that he you know he had this tactical glottal stop where he'd say the way he spoke well, and he had a young family and and we loved. <laughs> all that and it, and it spoke to us and it wasn't you know old men in bad raincoats anymore <laughs> um, and, but Keir Starmer and I, and I agree and he's only a human being he's a real person and I get all of that um, I think the issue has been that he's got this robot image and that needs to be dispelled but equally we need a very effective uh, opposition who tell us what they stand for he is very likable um, in, you know when you look at him on a personal level and this was a personality test I'm not sure I particularly enjoy this kind of whole um, hair shirt, let me tell you about how I got trashed with George Clooney stuff, because it's, it just feels a bit tactical and forced. I think when you're a big personality and you've got an engaging personality, it comes across, you know, love or hate Boris, whatever your views are on it. He doesn't need to do a personality to show to show us who he was. You know, there are other ways of doing it. And my beef with Keir Starmer, I mean, you know, I like him on lots of levels. I, I'm still trying to get over the fact that he would have served under Corbyn had Corbyn won and the stance that he took on things like anti-Semitism post facto um, it worries me a little bit because he he would have swallowed it we, um, but equally we have to look forward and, and you know I want him to be good so that he can put this government to proof Robert Crampton and Angela Epstein next one of our pre-pandemic profs If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. All this week, we've been profiling some of our favourite COVID experts. At the moment, they are never off our TV screens and radios and in our newspapers telling us what might happen with holidays and the like. Uh, Previously, we've heard from uh, Linda Bold, Professor of Public Health at Edinburgh University. Danny Altman, who is a professor of immunology at Imperial College London. Today, Susan Mickey, director of the Centre for Behavioural Change at University College London. Susan Mickey. SAGE's Professor Susan Mickey. Professor Susan Mickey. Susan Mickey from the government's SAGE advisory group. A member of the Behavioural Subcommittee of SAGE and a member of the Independent SAGE Committee. Uh, I spoke to her earlier and uh, she started off, first of all, by explaining what her role is as director of the Centre for Behavioural Change at University College London. I'm a professor of health psychology at University College London. And about seven or eight years ago, I um, thought it would be a really good idea to bring together lots of different people from different backgrounds to think about behaviour change because it's a complicated issue and no one academic discipline has got all the answers. And so that's where I set up the Centre for Behaviour Change. We do consultancy, we have a a master's course, uh, we do research, so very varied. And in terms of your own career, can I rewind right back to the beginning? And in fact, maybe before the beginning, I'm interested, your your parents in particular were absolute giants of science. And I wonder if the job you're doing now is a direct result of um, you know, knowing what they did and maybe being inspired by that. Yes, my, my mother was a reproductive biologist, an embryologist, and in fact, did all the work um, underpinning um, IVF. So, um, you know, she did the science that allowed that um, clinical procedure to develop. And my father um, 
He was one of the very early people in, in the world who was um, developing artificial intelligence and thinking about how this could be applied to robots. So I was brought up in a household um, where there was a lot of curiosity about things, a lot of discussion about ideas. Um, and I'm sure that that uh, you know, led me in, in a sort of scientific route. As a child, I remember reading a book about um, what it was like to be schizophrenic and um, being really impressed sort of by what happens to the brain when it's wrong and thinking about how one could get better understanding to help. So psychology, from an early age, you were thinking, this is what I'm interested in. Yeah, from say teen years, um, I became interested in, in psychology. Um, so I went to university and read psychology. And at the end of that, I thought, well, I've read lots of books and heard lots of lectures, but I really want to find out how to apply this to make things better. So I then did uh, clinical psychology uh, for two years, became a qualified clinical psychologist. This was at the Institute of Psychiatry in South oh. London. I did my training. Um, but after that, I thought, well, a lot of this is based on research and I want to get an independent research training so I can really evaluate the research because I'm doing all these therapies that are underpinned by evidence, but I wasn't confident that I could really evaluate that evidence. Um, so I went back to the university that I'd um, for my undergraduate degree in and um, did a PhD. Um, I'd always been really interested in children, looking at three, four and five-year-olds and how they think about number and how they solve problems. Gosh. And then after that, I then um, sort of combined all of that. So my first job was actually working in the joint NHS social services centre, working with children um, on the at-risk register and actually working with families, working to try and keep children with families um, so that they could develop the skills and the understanding hmm. to be able to kind of care that was needed for for those children in that job that you mentioned um did it seem like effective work you were doing with those families could you see benefits could you see change from what you were what you were doing with them <laughs> a dear friend of mine used to refer to psychologists like me as um the sticking plaster brigade I sticking e, plaster know, brigade been, <laughs> yeah, you know going around putting putting little bits of sticking plaster on on these big wounds that were being caused by <laughs> other things so i think one of the things that actually i find really pressing about the the job was just knowing the um incredible financial and housing and social challenges that people had and you know we were a, a, a sort of drop in the ocean a very important drop um, but I still felt it's a bit like running up an escalator going down. You then moved on, correct me if I'm wrong, to working uh, with health staff themselves, health practitioners, is that right? And, and helping them and working with them in terms of the problems that arose out of their work. Yes. Um, I then went to work at the Royal Free Hospital to begin, begin with, again, working with, with patients of various kinds. Mm. Um, but then it became obvious that actually um, a lot of the staff were were very stressed and they were often absent um, for psychological reasons. So I, um, well, a, a job was sort of created for me there, which was doing um, some work in the occupational health unit, so working with staff. And I developed three ways of working. I saw individual staff and often I saw them when problems at work were coinciding with problems at home. And so there wasn't any bit of their life that was strong. But I also noticed that we were getting a lot of referrals from certain parts of the hospital, certain departments more than others. And I could see that actually part of that was due to um, manage, the management not being better, really? communication not being better. And so I set up a lot of training for um, senior managers um, because if they could, um, in a way, do their job better, it had knock-on effects for so many other staff. And interesting now, I guess, looking at what's happening with us and has been happening in our hospitals during some of the more testing times of, of this pandemic. It's been huge. I mean, the, you know, obviously the 
NHS was under-resourced before this pandemic came, came along and, you know, a lot of evidence from NHS staff that they were feeling supported and sufficiently resourced and really struggling, a lot of people leaving mm. the professions. Then the pandemic came along, you know, and it's so much worse. So people have been really, really suffering um, in a huge way. And uh, really, the government needs to put a large amount of resource into supporting mm. uh, staff. You moved back into research, into into academia, if, 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 if these are the right words that I'm using, at King's College London and looking at um, genetic counselling. Um, what exactly is that? Yeah, so this was a programme of work um, that was looking at the psychological aspects of the new genetic tests that were coming along. So, for example, um, people from families where breast cancer was generation after generation yeah. uh, were able to test uh, to find out did they have the gene that would make them very likely um, to have breast cancer or not. But obviously, it has a lot of repercussions um, for people. So we were looking at um, aspects of that. And with genetic counselling, this was really how health professionals were talking to um, patients about uh, genetics, about risk, about what it meant for themselves, what it means to their family members, um, because it's quite a complicated subject um, and how one communicates complicated medical information can make a di big difference um, to people's response, both emotionally so in terms of their behaviour. And pre-pandemic, when you were thinking about all of these things, what was your understanding of um, the extents to which this could be useful? Of course, uh, lots of the campaigns around getting people to stop smoking has been quite successful. I think, you know, like away from healthcare, you know, this kind of behavioural policy to do with carrier bags has been quite single use. Plastic carrier bags have been quite useful. But did you, what, would, what did you think the extent of its utility was? Well, I was actually on um, SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group in Emergencies, um, in 2009. Way before it H was fashionable. Yeah. <laughs> swine flu. I don't know if you remember yes. swine flu or yeah. the H1N1 pandemic, which, thank goodness, wasn't as bad as had been feared. But I was the only social or behavioural scientist on that group at that time. And, you know, as, as now, I um, could completely see that, actually people's behavior is what causes transmission and changing people's behavior is what can um, break transmission and, and reduce the pandemic. So I persuaded the committee uh, to set up a specific behavioral, we called it the behavior and communication subgroup back then, um, which I chaired um, over that period and then ended up doing quite a bit of research in terms of um, how best to communicate again about um, pandemics and especially about risk, you know, what it means for people um, to feel they're at risk uh, or not. Um, so I then at that point um, with a colleague, uh, James Rubin, we began looking at the Department of Health. We had a, they had a weekly tracker measuring, you know, attitudes and emotional response and various kinds of behaviours. Mm. And then in doing that, uh, we realised that actually this data was really important, but actually could be massively improved. So we got a research grant um, as part of a whole suite of um, research grants that were funded after 2009. And we were able to um, pilot it, develop the measures, get ethics approval. And then they're all frozen for when the next pandemic came along. Ah. Um, so what it meant was when this pandemic came along at the beginning of last year, all of those were unfrozen and we were able to get going immediately, you know, doing our weekly surveys instead of waiting six months to do all the mm. procedures needed to get the ethics approval. Um, so that's been a really, um, really useful and, and um, gratifying, you know, that we were able to, to do that. So we've been advising um, the government and their communications based on the data we've been uh, collecting. I can't say that they've always got it right, <laughs> but at least we've been trying. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting. So your story and also um, some of the other people that, that I've spoken to for this um, series of interviews, it's interesting that um, what you're talking to us about now um, on the radio, on the television, in the in the newspapers is obviously 
you have the benefit of absolutely years and years and years and decades of, uh, in some cases, of, of research into this area and, and the rest of it. However, this time, the scrutiny of what you're doing and what you're saying um, is absolutely incredible. And I wonder how you found that all of a sudden, when you say something, it can immediately um, become a, a news story in itself. It can, it can change what's running in people's radio bulletins or TV bulletins. I think in general, scrutiny is a good thing. I think, um, it, if anything, um, the SAGE and the government in general um, should have been much more transparent much earlier on. I think public accountability is very good. And I think some of the things that have happened haven't had that degree of um, transparency. Um, however, that's a rather different thing than when um, one's words are twisted or one sees things made about what one has done in one's life or not done. Um, and that is um, not only personally unpleasant, but I think, it's, I think it's actually socially irresponsible because it undermines trust in science unnecessarily. Um, and obviously undermining trust in science is not helpful um, when... You know, we are, as even the government says it's trying to do, um, you know, base policy and practice mm. on what works, which is basically the what, what science is looking at. What are your hobbies, Professor Mickey, <laughs> away from all of this? Uh, uh, hobbies. Well, I have four grandchildren and uh, um, all quite young, um, between three months and five years Oof. old. And uh, uh, with two, two of my Two of my three children have um, produced those four wonderful grandchildren. So they're a huge hobby and absolutely delightful to see them growing up, um, adore spending time with them. Um, I love walking, um, playing tennis, uh, do yoga every morning, uh, do cryptic crosswords, <laughs> read novels. Um, I think the sorts of things that, that a lot of people in, enjoy doing. And I find actually between between work and those things and seeing my friends, I mean, obviously it's a thing I enjoy. Um, there's not a lot of time left over. I do love traveling, but I kind of forgotten what that's like. I, <laughs> but say, I, hope, I hope one day to pick that up again. Bless you. The things you've just said are things which have been borderline illegal for the past year, seeing your grandchildren, <laughs> seeing your friends and traveling. <laughs> well, well, tra traveling's been, been off. I mean, seeing grandchildren in parks has been lovely. Yes. At, at the moment, a lot of these things, actually the walking, the yes. crosswords, the um, yoga, etc. things can all be done in locations. But I desperately hope that we will not have to go through another of those. Professor Mickey, thank you so much for your time. It was a fascinating insight into your work. My pleasure. That was Susan Mickey, Director of the Centre for Behavioural Change at University College London. Tomorrow we'll hear from another one. We're going to hear from Mike Tildesley, who is uh, an infectious uh, disease modeller, who will also tell us about uh, some of the Amdram he does and Taekwondo. You don't want to miss that. Now, this United Kingdom. From Land's End to John O'Groats, St David's to Southend-on-Sea, and Belfast to Bognor Regis. England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. This is Disunited Kingdom on Times Radio. It's Disunited Kingdom, and hello to Luke Jacobs, editor at Kent Live in England. Hello. Hi, Luke. We've got Andy Phillip, uh, political editor at the Press and Journal in Scotland. Morning, Andy. Good morning. And Liz Perkins, defence reporter at the South Wales Evening Post. Hi there, how are you doing? And Alison Morris, crime correspondent at the Belfast Ter Telegraph. Hi, Alison. Good morning. Thank you all so much uh, for giving up part of your um, very sunny morning uh, this Wednesday. Let's start with you, uh, Luke, in England. Um, take us through your patch. What's concerning you? Something COVID-flavoured first, I think. Yeah, so, of course, what we've seen over the last few weeks with the... the potential threat to uh, the lockdown easing on June the 21st is the spread of this new variant, which is the so-called India variant. And it's something that hasn't necessarily um, affected us disproportionately in Kent. We've, of course, we've seen it's, it's affected the kind of the northwest of, the, of England uh, more so. We did, of course, have the Kent variant, or the so-called Kent variant, yes. until the end of last year, which, uh, which um, kind of drove the last lockdown. But we have actually seen a cluster, actually, in Canterbury, which, of course, is our university city um kind of the sent the, the postcodes that are affected are the ones that uh, tend to have the most university students uh, and 
yesterday they announced or the council announced that there's going to be some surge testing so they're they're very keen not to call it surge testing essentially there is there, there will be some some testing centers being opened uh, walk-in centers where people can go and see whether they've um uh, they have this new variant essentially and it's a way of kind of trying to crack down on it but the council are trying to reassure people here that it isn't it isn't a it isn't of any particular concern and it's very much about kind of trying to isolate uh, where this is affecting uh, 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 certain parts of Kent. Uh, so it's something to keep an eye on for sure. But hmm. there is no real signs that um, there is a, a, a potential kind of surge of, of of people being affected by this particular variant. But of course, uh, we'll see when, what the testing figures come back with. But we did have a reporter up there yesterday at the briefing. Um, the new director of public health, as I say, was very reassuring and made it very clear that there, there are a disproportionate number of cases um, of this new variant. But of course, it's something that the whole kind of the whole country is kind of keeping an eye on as we edge closer to June the 21st. But around the UK, numbers are up at least a bit. And Andy at the Press and Journal uh, yesterday, we uh, had Nicola Sturgeon at that press conference. There was, you know, she was echoing some concerns from some experts that were at the start of a third wave. Yes, that's right. There's a bit of a change of mindset um, needed to sort of deal with the changing um, nature of how we're looking at the number of cases compared with. Um, the number of people going to hospital or, or even dying now. So the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, has been talking more about how the chain has appears to be broken more now um, between catching the virus um, and then having the vaccine in the way, which is possibly stopping the more serious consequences of COVID. Um, but we're we're watching the country open up to some places like the Scottish Islands and the Western Isles and Northern Isles moving down to level zero, which is um, symbolically quite a big thing. Yeah. Uh, but with everything opening up, we're also hearing the National Clinical Director, Jason Leach, talk about, well, it's maybe at the start of a third wave, other experts um, uh, also talking about how, you know, we have to be cautious, but it's hard to see how the general public then translate those warnings into being given permission effectively to go and do loads more, go out and yeah. meet huge groups. We can all sit inside the pub now in, everywhere in Scotland, you know, for, for uh, to varying degrees. So it's really now a kind of a waiting game. And don't forget, there's going to be a fan zone apparently opened in the middle of Glasgow as well with the, the Euros um, taking place in just a few days. So uh, we've got quite a lot of anxious officials I think looking at the numbers while the politicians are also having their own argument in the background yesterday the opposition parties talking about how you know nearly three million Scots are still in limbo because they're still restricted by level two so a whole city like Glasgow which has been under the longest of all the higher restrictions um, finally moving down from three to two which at a practical level means adult outdoor contact sports and being able to go indoors for hospitality and cafes and pubs. Um, they're talking about how more targeted measures need to be mm -hmm. implemented now rather than even those blanket measures, which is effectively, you know, we're nowhere near lockdown when you're at level two. Yeah. So it really is a bit of a waiting game now, I think. Liz, at the South Wales Evening Post, tell us about the the situation in Wales because um, we keep being told around the UK that the, the answer to managing COVID in the future is um, really good uh, contact tracing and testing and the Welsh Government have announced that uh, Test Trace Protect, that that service is going to be extended for quite a long while. Yeah, I've got to say, I mean, Wales has been doing incredibly well in terms of this crisis. I mean, we've got about 1.1 million people who've been vaccinated in Wales. So it means that there's 35.5% who are fully vaccinated. And it seemed that things were going great. And, and now we've we've got an unfortunate situation in Conoy um, where they've got cases of the Indian variant. I mean, 35 cases doesn't seem a lot. Um, and they're concentrated on Llandidno, Llandidno Junction and Penryn Bay. But the reality is that this cluster is heading towards community transmission. Mm. And that's obviously caused, made a concern with Lee Ned Morgan, the Welsh Health Minister, as to, you know, really people need to go out and get tested, even if they don't have symptoms, because clearly, I mean, that is going to cause major problems for the rest of Wales if that's not properly contained.
And uh, Alison, move us on to um, to Northern Ireland, your crime correspondent at the Belfast Telegraph. But just um, what is the COVID situation in Northern Ireland at the moment? What's the thing which is concerning people most? Well, I mean, the, the vaccination programme here has been working really fast. I mean, at this stage last week, they put out a call for over 18s to start booking their, their vaccination if they wanted to because there was extra vaccine left over. Um, we have very low cases. I think there was something like 58 positive tests yesterday and there hasn't been any deaths away. There has been a few. Um, uh, Indian variant has been located in Northern Ireland. I think at, at this stage it's, you know, in, in very low double figures. But um, we were at this place last summer and so people, you know, and then we ended up going to a second wave. So people are still being cautious. Mm. But this week the Orange Order have announced that the 12th, which was cancelled last year, all the marches were cancelled because of COVID, will go ahead. So there's a a sign that nature's healing is it not we're going to have orange order parades in july again um I, you know I, I i think that you know people are hopeful that the vaccine is going to be the game changer and we're not going to go back into to another wave but we always have to be cautious because we were right down to single hospital admissions um last august you know september and then by december december and january the hospitals were completely overwhelmed so nobody wants to go back into that we know it's a winter virus so it's easy to get complacent when we're all outdoors enjoying ourselves in the summer but I think, you know, the, the health minister is urging, urging caution, you know, especially around large gatherings. Alison, it moves on to something a little bit more uh, politics flavoured. Um, Edwin Poots, the new DUP leader, how is he bedding in? When is he going to announce um, some ministers? What a week we have had for politics <laughs> here, I can tell you. Last week, the DUP met in a hotel in Belfast, which should have been a rubber stamp and exercise to ratify the new leader. Edwin Poots, and instead it turned into probably an hour of the most gripping political theatre I have seen in a long time. So former leader Arling Foster, along with MPs for Jeffrey Donaldson and several other senior party members, walked out of the meeting before Edwin Poots had even made his leader his maiden speech. Um, outside, several, you know, a senior party member from Fermanagh resigned at the treatment of Arling Foster. Then Ian Paisley Jr. showed up and said that he knew all about you know, when, when a leader was ousted and his father, had, it had hastened his death in the way he was removed from the DUP. This was all just meant to be, you know, ratify the leader. He makes a speech, everyone claps and we all go home. So <laughs> the ministers were meant to be announced yesterday. He still hasn't announced. The Morning Foster has said if he changes the ministerial team now, she'll resign and she'll leave the party and all sorts of other drama. So we're probably going to get them either, you know, the new ministerial team either at the end of this week or the start of next week. Most interestingly, while Edwin Poots wanted to be leader of the DUP, he doesn't, does not want to be First Minister. And he's going to appoint someone else to be First Minister, probably the MLA, Paul Gervin, who um, he's probably the reason Stormont, you know, collapsed. The sort of straw that broke the camel's back, he removed a £50,000 Irish language bursary for school children going to the Gale Talk. And that was when Sinn Féin oh, walked out of the Assembly a few years ago. Yeah. So, you know, that that's going to be interesting to see what happens there. But my goodness, I mean, if there's if you ever want to see drama, you've only got to look at what's going on in the turn in the DUP right now. I mean, there is a split right down the middle of that party. Drama indeed. Um, Luke, uh, Kent Live, tell us about what we've been. All of us have been enjoying the um, the, the sunny weather uh, in most parts of the UK at the moment. But one of the uh, sad things we've come to realise over the past few years that good weather uh, does usually equal more migrant crossings across uh, the Channel, um, which obviously is, is incredibly dangerous. And have you seen that spike over the over the bank holiday weekend? Yeah, absolutely, Luke. Yeah, we saw six around 600 uh, crossings um, over the bank holiday weekend. And as you mentioned there, we saw a record high last year during the summer, of course, and that came uh, during the pandemic and during lockdown, of course, when you know we were all shut inside our homes and we were able to, um, there's a bit more focus on this at the time. But I think it's probably key to, to point out that there are two aspects to this. There, there's the, there's the, the issue of, um, of, of crossings when it comes to uh, trafficking, um, and, and, and slavery as well and along those lines and that's probably the backdrop to the government's new plan for immigration which has actually come under fire of course from many people uh, locally uh, when it comes to um, refugee groups here and refugee action groups uh, locally here in Kent who believe that it actually makes it harder for asylum seekers to um, to come here and to seek asylum. It appears to uh, ring true when you when you see the numbers who which aren't particularly coming down which of course would would, the government would, of course, would say that's the reason why they do need to overhaul the system. But you know, when you do see the crossings increase like this, and uh, when you do consider that many of these as people, and it's, and it's and it's really really important to point out that they are people um, as well as well as people who are, who are in kind of desperate need of, of, of a new home. 
um, they themselves are, are victims. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's important to, of course, to remember that uh, when they when they do arrive here, um, you know, what is what happens to them and, and what is their destination? And I think people locally are tend to, uh, of course, get become worried that is it, it do they will they stay here? Will they settle here? Of course, we have a um, we have a holding center, a Napier Barracks, which over the last few months has become a bit of a, a lightning rod uh, for some for action, for instance. Yeah. Only recently, uh, in fact, over the weekend, um, there was a very, very small uh, protest um, near the port in Dover uh, from those who who, um, who perhaps believe uh, that the, the problem of immigration is something that um, isn't perhaps being, being, being tackled. And I, I use the word problem there because that's the, that's the word that, that they would use. Um, so you're seeing these, these issues conflating. Uh, so it's, it'd be interesting to see what the government's uh, immigration overhaul, what that does to, to these numbers. Um, and of course, you know, what happens to people uh, when they do arrive here on these shores and, you know, the humanitarian aspects of that, you know, what, are they, are they um, uh, sent back to use that phrase or uh, do, you know, are they allowed to settle here uh, regardless of whatever route they've come here? And the, um, the overriding kind of message from kind of the refugee, uh, local refugee action groups here is, you know, what are the safe and legal routes? Yeah. Are they- there don't appear to be any that, that have been established. Of course, you will have these crossings because there are people trying to circumvent um, the actual, you know, the kind of the, the, the legal uh, uh, ways of, of getting here. And if, if there aren't any kind of legal ways of, of coming here, then of course you're going to see these um, the, 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 this increase in, in the number of crossings, mm-hmm. uh, particularly, of course, when it comes to warmer weather. So it's an ongoing issue. Um, it's something very much that, um, that the people locally are, are aware of, particularly in our kind of coastal towns. I'm uh, thinking I'm here, as I say, of Dover and Folkestone. Uh, but there is a kind of, as I say, against the backdrop of, of, of many people who do who do want to help, but just, just don't know how. Thanks for bringing our attention to that, Luke. Andy at the Press and Journal. Of course, the, our headlines here on Times Radio this morning have been uh, busy with um, catch-up uh, teaching and learning for pupils in England. But in Scotland, obviously, there's, there's still uh, a, d- a debate and an issue with the appeals process uh, for exams for, for the hires and, and others. What's happening with that? Uh, well, the Deputy First Minister... John Sweeney was in charge of education in Scotland up until the election. He weathered a few pretty tricky storms um, with the way that exams were handled in the previous school year. Um, the whole system, I think Scotland was first, but the similar kind of problem happened in England as well, I think, where initial grades were judged to have been pretty unfair in the way they were awarded. It caused all kinds of trauma. It was, uh, it appeared to penalise pupils from poorer backgrounds uh, and teachers eventually were asked to just use their own judgment which is what many of them had asked for in the first place so there was a lot of unnecessary anguish for a lot of people teenagers in you know enduring a pretty tough year already the new education secretary is going to make a statement in a couple of hours at Scottish Parliament about the appeals process for hires um, higher exams and, and national fives so senior phase pupils um, haven't been able to set their exams properly this year. But a lot of parents would say otherwise, and so would children, that these are exams in, a, in, a, you know, in all but name. And essentially the new education secretary has got quite a job on her plate to explain how things are going to get better for um, young people in Scotland this year, because so far, uh, teachers, parents and families have, have, have not been particularly happy with the way that they've been treated and the way that the pupils are being asked to, to go about their work. Um, but the, 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 there's another thing happening at Parliament as well. Um, just while we were talking oh, yeah. uh, earlier, back to COVID, if I can, yeah, um, Douglas, Ross, Douglas Ross, the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party, just in the past 10 minutes, confirmed that he's self-isolating. Oh. Um, so... He, he got a close contact, apparently got um, a positive test. The, the, the interesting thing, of course, here is that he was in the Scottish Parliament this morning when he found out about that. So he had to sort of isolate in his office and he's going to be staying in his Edinburgh hotel recess because he, he's um, uh, an MSP in the Highlands and Islands and represents Murray in, in my patch at Westminster. He's a he's all two, over. Two, two jobs. So this really illustrates the challenge that we're all facing now as more and more places open up 
and yeah. people travel around and come into contact with a lot of people potentially. So that's definitely one to watch there. Across the UK, on DAB Digital Radio, on the free Times Radio app, and on your smart speaker. This is Times Radio. Back to Luke Jones in format, surely. Disunited Kingdom continues, and I'd like some lighter stories uh, from you all. Um, Liz, I'm going to go for you first because I saw this in the paper this morning. This um, sign in Carmarthen, um, which costs lots of money and is pants. Tell us about it. You know what? As somebody who went over to LA to see the Hollywood sign, we were kind of sold this idea that this is what we were going to get outside Carmarthen. So I was quite excited. Why would they set it up for a fail like that by saying it's going to be like the Hollywood sign? Well, exactly. I mean, you know, we all head over to LA just to see it and you're just thinking, oh, wow, it would be fantastic. So the the council spent £136,000 on recreating that, but for Carmarthen. And Sadly, tragically, it does not look at all like it. Um, I've seen both signs, and the problem is when you drive past the Carmarthen one, it's just a blink and you miss it. <laughs> and it was all meant to be about promoting the town, so tourists who headed down to Pembrokeshire, they would see this and obviously pop into Carmarthen, but now they're just seeing nothing. It's there, they're not going to move it, even though it's not as anticipated. They are going to make slight changes, but um, yeah... It's not really going to be the talk of Britain, sadly. Just describe it, because, Liz, because we can all picture in our minds the Hollywood sign, but the, the Carmarthen Absolutely. one, um, yeah, just describe it. It's kind of like a, more of a bronze sort of colour. It's quite slight, actually, and it's almost created like an, a wave, and it come, it's almost too far back off the road. It, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, in the Holly, Hollywood one is on, on the hill, and yeah. you can see it, but it's literally... It's on the A40. Road. Yeah, yeah. And it's just when you come off onto a bypass, it's just literally there. So you have no time to look at it because you're too busy looking at the traffic heading behind you and just, you know, trying to peel out to that junction. And the people who are actually coming past there, they go in at such a speed mm. that they're heading towards a roundabout. They have no time to look at it. So it just seems like such a waste of money. Alison, um, this pandemic, uh, if it's taught us anything, it's taught us that so many people love wild swimming uh, and sea swimming, but they also love talking about it. And uh, that's causing issues in Northern Ireland. For why? Yes, but do they love it? Do they really? You see, I can't get my head around it. It's some kind of masochism, is it? Isn't it? I don't get it. I don't understand. But yes, but I mean, I suppose it's good that it's, it means that people are now more aware of the quality of the water and the water's having to be tested to ensure it's safe for, for people to swim in it. But I mean, I don't know how many of you have ever been to Ireland, Northern Ireland in particular. It's gorgeous today, but in general, it is freezing here. And I mean freezing <laughs> constantly and raining. I have a friend who paid 200 quid for some kind of dry robe type effort so that she could jump into freezing cold sea and then get out of it and wrap herself in this thing and told me it would give me an enormous sense of well-being and I should try it. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I can assure you, like, as I keep telling her, sitting on the sofa with cheap Sauvignon Blanc watching Netflix gives me an enormous sense of well-being. Jumping in freezing cold oceans is not up there on my list of things to do before I die. Um, but yeah, and as you said, I mean, social media is full of them. You can't do it quietly. If you're going to do it, you have to tell the whole world yeah. that you've done it as well. It's these dawn swimmers then as well. Who gets up at that hour of the day to jump in the ocean? I don't know. Well, anyone, well, hang um, on. Before you explain it, the issue, um, Liz, Andy, Luke, any of you uh, wild swimmers? And maybe in, in Northern Ireland you've done it. Any of you? Not no, yet. I, I, I think um, Alison might need to come over to, to Scotland because I was just going to talk to you about that. A, a, a heated open air pool, which is just reopened after two years as well. This is the this so is the fancy, antidote. So fancy. Twenty nine degrees um, up near Aberdeen. That's a bath. That's actually, like swimming in soup. Well, I, I mean, other people might point this out, but that's warmer than an Aberdonian's bath for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 great. And it's an art, beautiful Art Deco place. Um, it's just open after two years and everyone's away swimming in it. And um, by the sea, obviously you don't have to go in the sea at all anymore. And it is seawater heated. So, but the issue is, yeah. if, if not just the temperature, about how clean it is. And Alison, the issue with this um, bathing water review is about water quality testing, isn't it? Because we're always being told that actually most of the places that you're swimming, it might not actually be good for you. No, that's it. And and the fact is that people haven't even thought about that. They've just decided they're going to get up to the crack of dawn and go around jumping in water without considering what else might be floating in the water alongside them. Yeah, meanwhile, um, they're sort know, of doing like, I'm yeah, a third wave of a, of a pandemic based on some mad virus that's been picked up by people jumping in dirty water. 
um, and hanging around with each other. But yeah, so I mean, I suppose it's a good thing that it means people are going to be more aware of that. They're just going to have to be more testing of the water and that can only be good for everyone and be good for the environment. But regardless of how clean they tell me it is, I'm not getting into it anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, <all right. laughs> Someone else um, move us along. Um, Luke, tell us about this uh, lorry park um, in Kent, the one which we've heard about at no end uh, when we were talking about uh, Brexit and, and the future relationship. But now there's another issue. Absolutely, Luke. Just to, just to pick up on that, actually, I'm, I'm totally with Alison, by the way, on, on wild swimming. I cannot really <laughs> track it, but I'm sure, I'm sure I'm sure I'll probably get there at some point. You did ask for a lighter story, Luke, and I've actually got a literal one here for ah. you, actually. <laughs> this, is, this is the Brexit lorry park, um, as you say, off the M20 in Kent, which, of course, um, is due to um, to hold so many lorries. And it actually is at the moment because it is actually functioning as a COVID testing site uh, for, for lorries that come over, come over the port. Um, it's been compared to Wembley Stadium. And I mean, I'm looking forward to Euro 2020 tournament this, uh, this summer after a year, year's worth of delay. But this is being compared to Wembley in a perhaps negative way. Um, essentially, um, the lorries are parked up there overnight and you can see it from miles off uh there are so many um so many lights on uh, from the lorries and also from the facility itself it's it's according to residents uh, around the actual uh, lorry park itself it's ruining their views and of course it's keeping them up at night as well because uh, the light is shining through their windows so it's 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 an ongoing issue perhaps not for the reason you'd expect um and we'll see whether they'll, they'll be able to dim those lights um over the sort of coming weeks and months uh, the government have actually come back as well uh, because they're actually due to uh, have actually publicly released the environment, environmental impact, um, which is something you have to do when you when you apply uh, for planning permission for something and before it's approved. They haven't actually released that publicly yet. And of course, people would, would expect uh, this to have, to have been included mm. in that as well. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't appear to have seen the light of day, unfortunately, Ooh. as yet. So, well, well done. <laughs> Well done. <laughs> Finishing us off there with a, with a literal lighter story and a, and a lovely pun thrown in as well. Thanks very much, Luke. That's Luke Jacobs, editor of Kent Live. Um, that's it for Disunited Kingdom. Thank you all. We've also heard from Andy uh, Phillip, political editor at the Press and Journal in Scotland, Liz Perkins, defence reporter at the South Wales Evening Post, and Alison Morris, crime correspondent at the Belfast Telegraph, taking us around all four corners of the UK. Thank you very much to all the disunited kingdom uh, journalists around the UK there we're hearing from. I'm Luke Jones. Thank you very much for downloading and for listening to this podcast and for making it to the end. A slap on the back for that. Uh, do download tomorrow. We'll have loads more in store. We'll be talking about courts and all that has changed uh, with them in the pandemic. And as I mentioned, another one of our pre-pandemic profs, Mike Tilsley on Taekwondo, uh, on Amdram and Ebola. Thanks for downloading. See you tomorrow. <laughs>